Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Really glad to join us today. Today I have Randall Rouser back on the show talking about the question of why isn't God clear and dealing with biblical ambiguity. So Randall, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Zach. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm super excited for this conversation and it's good to see you again and hopefully you're doing pretty well up north in Canada and whatnot. Um, so just yeah, we, had, we, we had a good summer, so um, we're, we're, we got our batteries charged for the winter, so it's good. How warm does it get up there in like northern Canada? Well, we were, uh, the mercury was pushing 100 degrees Fahrenheit uh, on a few days this year, which is very unusual. Huh. I don't know if you heard, but in southern British Columbia, where I grew up, the temperature in Lytton, British Columbia hit 49.6 Celsius. I'm not yeah. sure what that would be, like 115 Fahrenheit or something. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's hotter than it's ever gotten in Las Vegas. Huh. in British Columbia, Canada. So I think climate change is, is doing some wacky things here. Huh, that's pretty crazy. It's been a pretty hot summer down here as well, um, but we'll save that for another day. Today yeah. we're talking about the question of um, biblical ambiguity and just all kinds of important questions. And I contacted you about this because I was reading through your book, Jesus um, Loves Canaanites and like on biblical violence and whatnot, and really good book and thinking about it. And you have a really good last chapter kind of wrestling with like this question of um, why isn't God clear? Why do we have to have this debate? Um, so before we get into the main meat of the interview, just want to talk a little bit about like um, what got you into to write this chapter and things like that. Sure. So maybe a, like a, a potted summary of the book to start. So for mm -hmm. context, so the, the basic idea of, of the book is to look at the problem of biblical violence by focusing in particular on the conquest of Canaan as directed in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20, and then carried out in Joshua 1 to 12 in particular. And I argue, uh, I take a look at different ways of interpreting the those passages and argue uh, well, I summarize, I, I survey and critique people that I call the genocide apologists and the just war interpreters in particular. Uh, the first group says, well, this is just straight ahead. It, it would meet the legal definition of genocide, but God commanded it, so it's good. The just war interpreters say, well, a more nuanced reading of these passages would actually suggest, uh, lead to the conclusion that they meet the standards of just war theory today. And so the kind of revulsion that we have toward genocide is, is not an issue because these are, in fact, just war texts. And I critique both of those positions. And I also take a look then at other alternative readings of these passages in Canaan. And that gives rise to the final chapter, because then what we have is a big problem, how to understand texts that appear on a, a particular reading to communicate this idea that God commanded genocide, which we widely consider to be a moral atrocity. Um, and how do you interpret it? And, and in particular, given that Christians have a variety of different interpretations, how do you deal with that ambiguity? So that's the context here. Uh, for people who want the argument as to why we should think this is always a moral atrocity, they can go to the book. But as you said, we're talking about the specific question today of ambiguity. The, one, the first thing I would just say at the outset is that this is a general problem uh, of the Christian life not just one that is, is limited to this particular topic. So, for example, in another book I wrote, What's So Confusing About Grace, I point out that the, the gospel message itself is, in fact, in its, de in its details, it's a lot more complicated uh, than many Christians recognize, or there's a lot more room for disagreement than many Christians recognize. For example, uh, growing up, it was very common just to say, well, the gospel message is that you know Jesus died for your sins, and in Romans 10, 9, 
If you believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. Simple. But then you get into some complexities because then you ask a question, okay, but Mormons say that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. So are Mormons saved because of their confession? And then the person says, well, okay, maybe it's a little more complicated because Mormons believe in the false Jesus or something like that. Well, okay, then what does it mean to believe in a false Jesus? Because that's not clearly articulated in Romans 10, 9. On the other hand, you have other people like a child who dies in infancy or as a toddler. And you say, well, they didn't pray that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Are they going to hell? And then you get more nuance there. And as you begin to unpack these things in real world circumstances, you begin to recognize that there's a lot more disagreement over how salvation works out among Christians than many Christians recognize on the surface. And it seems to me then that we simply have two options here. Uh, the one option is to say God didn't know what he was doing. He was inept somehow, and he failed to provide the degree of clarity about what it is to be saved that is really required. The other option is to say that God knew exactly what he was doing, and God allowed uh, there to be these statements like Romans 10.9, but also a complexity in how they are interpreted and applied in the Christian life as we do our theology and that's why you get this ambiguity. So the ambiguity and disagreement that exists within the Christian community on a fundamental question like salvation and how it works out, I think, is part of God's providential intentionality that he allowed that degree of disagreement to exist for his own sovereign purposes. That's really good. And it's something that I've been reflecting on recently, just like in my own like personal journey, because like growing up, like, you know, you hear like the Romans road or like you get the book with the different colors and it's like, there you go, there's the gospel and it's settled. But then like, we have these like really big questions of like who saves, who's not saved. How do we interpret the Bible? And I think you're right um, in terms of there being a lot of ambiguity on like understanding even like the core issues surrounding like Christianity. So appreciate that. So what we'll do now is I'm going to read a quote from John Loftus that he says, and you use this at the beginning of your chapter to kind of look at um, maybe like how atheists will kind of look at biblical ambiguity and use it as kind of like an argument maybe against Christianity. So here's what John Loftus says. He says, dispensing higher critical studies and just taking the Bible at face value. What are we to make of the way that God communicated given the final canonical Bible? My claim is that God did a woefully inadequate job, especially since he's supposedly omniscient and knows how sinful people such as um, how sinful people such as us could misunderstand his words. Um, so what do you make of Loftus's take on um, biblical ambiguity and like, how would you respond, Randall? Yeah. Um, so uh, Loftus presents an argument, I think he calls it the argument from miscommunication. And so the, the idea here, the assumption is that, well, um, if, if God's going to communicate to us, we should expect a, a, a text of maximal clarity or a communication of maximal clarity for the maximal number of people. And if the text fails to provide that, then we have good reason to think that it didn't actually come from God. Uh, the first thing I want to just kind of uh, highlight is he uses this word face value. He says that we should take the Bible at face value. I'm not even sure what that means, to be honest, mm -hmm. um, because people disagree as to what face value even looks like. Take, for example, the way that God is repeatedly described in scripture in human terms as having a body, as sitting on a throne, as having a right arm, a face, hair of wool, uh, a finger, and so on. So repeatedly, God is described in human terms. One person will look at that and say, well, at face value, God is humanoid. He's like us. And of course, Mormons, who I mentioned earlier, actually do take that view. Mm -hmm. Another person says, well, at face value, in fact, 
we should interpret these as metaphors. God is being described in anthropomorphic terms, but that's an accommodation to the human reader. God is not, in fact, literally sitting on a throne. He does not literally have an arm, a right hand, uh, hair like wool, and so on. And so the, the question of face value is not a simple one. And I think that we have to be very careful about assuming that there is some default, just natural, obvious reading of passages, whether it is the passages that describe God in human terms or whether it's the passages that describe God commanding genocide. Having said that, that does set up the question for us. Because the question then is, okay, if it isn't clear what the face value reading is or the, the obvious reading, why did God communicate this text to us which is not in the terms that we would expect. Here we need to take a step back and say, okay, the whole question itself is prefaced on an assumption about what the Bible is, what its purpose of communication is. So one example I've used in another one of my books is that many people, and growing up, I grew up conservative evangelical slash fundamentalist, so we sometimes call it fundagelical, in a very similar background, in fact, to John Loftus. So I think I know the, the kind of way that he's approaching the Bible here, because I approached it like that growing up. Uh, I thought of the Bible, you can think of it in, as like when you walk into a hotel room and you look on the back door of the hotel room and there is a map uh, for in case of fire, how to exit the hotel most expeditiously, how to get quickly out of the hotel in case of fire. Now for a hotel map, showing you how to exit the hotel in case of fire, you should not expect any ambiguity. There should not be room among the, the people in the hotel as to how to interpret the various um, directives on the hotel to exit in case of fire. Because the whole point of the map is simply to get you out of the hotel in case of fire. And I think that people like Loftus, when they present the objection like this, they have an assumption that the Bible functions like that map. It's an escape route to get out of hell, essentially. And that's what the Bible is really about. And so if there's any ambiguity or room for reasonable disagreement in the communication and reading of the text, that is uh, on the fault of the author for failing to achieve the ends of maximal clarity. But what if that is not the point of the Bible in the first place? What if thinking about the Bible as functioning like a map for an escape route in case of fire is simply a flawed metaphor? What if God is doing something entirely different and the purposes for which God has in writing scripture and giving it to us is to meet his very different purposes, which do include some degree of ambiguity in the text. In that case, and on that scenario, this whole conundrum is in fact a false one, uh, because God did not fail the ends for which he purposed scripture. So I would challenge Loftus's whole assumption as to what the Bible is even there for. Mm -hmm. So I wonder then, Randall, like, what is like the default reading of scripture like look like if there is one? Because um, obviously there's certain passages um, that we'd want to take literal, like the death and res resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then especially with like your views with like um, Old Testament violence, like, you know, like there's no way God would command the things that um, at least on the face value, it, it appears like he did. Um, so like, how do we like discern like how to read the Bible? Well, that's of course the question of hermeneutics, of interpretation. The first thing I think we have to do at the outset is to challenge the assumption that we can speak in monolithic terms about the proper interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. Because what the Bible, in fact, is, is a diverse collection of different writings written in different literary genre within distinct socio-historical contexts to original readers that are separated from us by two to three thousand years in three languages that are not widely spoken by today's contemporary readers. So we're reading them in translation. 
And with that in mind, I think the outset, what we have to say is we need to dispense with the idea of the one face value approach to reading the Mm -hmm. Bible. Rather, what we need to do is to engage with every text, every genre within its particular literary context, but also recognizing that we as Christian readers are informed by particular theological assumptions that will guide our reading. So, for example, I mentioned the language of God in human terms a few moments ago. As a Christian reader who believes that God is the necessary agent cause of everything else that exists, I am going to believe at the outset that God is not literally sitting on a throne. I should also mention the literary uh, necessary necessary agent cause who is non-physical. He's spiritually non-physical. So when I describe read God being described in human terms, I do interpret that as anthropomorphic. I do interpret it as God being described in human terms so that we can grasp something of God, but not as a literal description. Now, that is, in fact, a theological assumption that informs my reading of Scripture. And when I read about God seeming to command the mass slaughter of women and children and infants and the elderly in a society in a way that meets the contemporary legal definition of genocide, if I'm informed in my reading, both by, I believe, our God-given moral intuitions as to what morality is, what moral value is, and what moral obligation are, um, and also by who I believe God to be revealed as in Jesus, then those are also overriding assumptions to guide how I read the text. Uh, some of them are moral intuitive, some of them are Christological, again, some of them are theological, and so on. And so when we become aware of the background assumptions by which we read texts, and we bring those background assumptions into dialogue with the text understood in its literary and sociocultural historical context, we can begin to move toward answering the question that you've posed. It's not simple, in other words. Mm-hmm. No, I really appreciate it. It is important to remember, like, almost like the baggage we bring in to, like, the text. Like, I was talking with someone I care a lot about on Genesis 1, just, like, recently. And he's like, they're telling me, like, well, if you just read it, like, it's just obvious that um, it's teaching a young earth. And it's like, well, maybe from, like, a 21st century American context, yes. But then we have to, like, dive into the context of the biblical writers and what are they trying to say, not what we just think they were, they're trying to say. Um, so, yeah. I yeah. That. I mean, um that, I like the way you put that, because uh, you could read a book like Ronald Numbers' book. He's a historian of science. He wrote a book called The Creationist, and he points out that modern young earth creationism really arose in the early 20th century with a fellow named George McCready Price, who was a Seventh-day Adventist and a flood geologist in the 1920s. And then it it was uh, adopted by the, the rise of the fundamentalist movement and then was reinvigorated in the early 1960s by the publication of a book called The Genesis Flood. And what these folks do is what we all do, is that they set up a reading tradition. And so when a person like your friend thinks, well, the natural way to read Genesis 1 and 2 is just as a straightforward literal description, what they don't realize is that they have been inculcated, they've been, um, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but they've learned a particular reading tradition. And every one of us has a reading tradition, Mm -hmm. whether we recognize it or not. That's why interpretation is never without presuppositions. The, the challenge, rather, is to become aware of the presuppositions that we have when we come to the text. Yeah, it's super great and definitely worth thinking about. So the next question here, then, is can you talk about the story in your book where you talk about um, Van Zant and how that kind of, in your in your view, at least, part, um, you can, like, answer the question of, like, biblical ambiguity? 
Yeah, so there are different Van Zants. Uh, any fans of Leonard Skinner know about Johnny and Ronnie Van Zant, but here we're talking about Gus Van Zant. Gus Van Zant is a film director, uh, critically acclaimed one, I would say. And in 2003, he had a film come out called Elephant, and the film depicts a day in the life of a high school. And as events unfold in the high school, they culminate in a school shooting. That looks a lot like the Columbine shooting that happened in Littleton, Colorado, four years earlier in 1999. Now, the one thing uh, that is that Elephant was a very polarizing film. Some critics loved the film. Other critics really critiqued it. And interestingly, they critiqued it on moral grounds. And their argument was that Van Zant failed as a director because he presented the events of the film without commentary without any framing devices to how we should interpret uh, the events of an unfolding school shooting. In other words, they believe there should have been a clearer moral indictment of the events in the film on behalf of the filmmaker. And that by failing to provide that, the filmmaker failed in his moral obligation to the viewing audience. But very interestingly, my favorite, uh, all-time favorite um, film reviewer, Roger Ebert, he offered a, a response to that, and he says, on the contrary, the fact that Van Zant refuses to provide commentary, a framing interpretive structure for the events that unfold in that film, is exactly where its moral responsibility lies. That there are not that he's not going to spoon feed us quick and simple answers to explain and interpret a school shooting. Rather, he's going to leave it in our laps. His role is to depict it in cinematic form. And we now have to wrestle with the moral fallout and understand how we interpret it and how we are going to seek to prevent that happening in the future. And the point there is that the critic of the Bible, I think, does something similar. They say God failed in his obligations to communicate to us by allowing for there to be events depicted within Scripture which are, are open to the belief, the interpretation that God actually did command these things. And God failed if, if God does not explicitly indict and condemn those actions described in Scripture. And on the contrary, I would argue that just as Van Zandt was being a responsible filmmaker by withholding that additional layer of analysis, so I think God is being a responsible agent communicating to us his will by withholding at points the interpretive framework for how to digest or process that. So um, I believe the ambiguity that exists within the text is there for the moral formation of the Christian community as they read the text Christologically through Christ, informed by our moral knowledge, and we wrestle through the meaning and interpretation and application of the text. Yeah, that's super good. So just kind of like thinking about this idea of moral formation, um, and a lot of times it's like, yes, that is a great thing. Like, at least part of the reason I think God is hidden is like he wants us to work together and figure these things out and like try to understand the world. Um, but then I think a lot of times like we don't actually like your vision of using this to form our character and become more like Christ. Like we don't do this when we approach, like, especially like the warfare attacks or things like this. It's more of just like trying to debate and like make our side be right rather than actually like trying to like grow and understand these things. Um, so like, what do you think about like that kind of idea, Randall, kind of challenging um, this idea of there being the spiritual formation with this biblical ambiguity? So I, th I think I can sort of um, frame uh, the, the response or, or the, uh, the counter argument that you're presenting here as follows, that the idea is maybe in principle that works, but sometimes a text, whether it be a cin cinematic text or a, or a literary text, we can just think about text very broadly here, uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes a text is so open to misunderstanding and miscommunication that that simply undermines the positive moral formative outcome of the degree of ambiguity that exists within the text. Yeah. I actually give an illustration of this in, in, the, in the chapter from the, the music group. They're called a horrorcore rap group called Insane Clown Posse. Mm -hmm. I admit I'm not a fan of Insane Clown Posse, but I do find their, their story to be kind of interesting. So they, they appeared again in the early 1990s and they were releasing independent albums and they amassed a cult following of rabid fans called Gigolos. And uh, the thing is that the lyrical content of Insane Clown Posse is very graphic. It's sexually violent and physically violent. Um, I, I quote a critic in, in the book saying that their music is like sub Eminem, not the candy M&Ms, but Eminem, the rapper, in terms of its misogyny and its violence. And yet around 10 years ago, Insane Clown Posse, they're a duo, by the way, they came out and they said, well, in fact... All of this um, is sort of an act. We're really like followers in God, of God. Is some ambiguity as to whether they really would count themselves as Christian or not. But they do say that we, we really are want to follow God. And all of the violence and misogyny and, and sexual violence and so on, that's really there just to sort of challenge us to, to move beyond that and to adopt a life of selflessness and following God. The problem is that their fans didn't seem to get that point because their fans are notoriously violent and destructive. And in fact, the FBI has categorized the gigolos as a, as a gang uh, in, mm -hmm. in a way that it, once you get on the FBI's radar, then that's pretty serious, right? So you would say, okay, if Insane Clown Posse is being genuine and they really were ironically presenting all of this violent and sexual content, then they really failed in their communication to challenge and form their listening audience because the audience completely missed the point. And there does seem to come a point where you could say, well, Christians throughout history seem to have missed the point because they have so often defended particular violent readings of scripture, which is inconsistent with the formative purposes of scripture to become more like Jesus. I admit that that's a problem, right? It does. I can understand how people can see it like that. What I would want to do here is say that what we have here is a parallel to the general problem of evil, right? It's like, well, how could God have morally sufficient reasons to allow this degree of evil in the world? How could God have morally sufficient reasons to allow this degree of ambiguity within the text? And one response that Christians make to the general problem of evil has been called skeptical theism, which I think is an unhelpful term, but I'll use it for the sake of clarity. The idea there is that even if you cannot understand all the reasons that God has, morally sufficient reasons to allow this degree of evil in the world, we should not think that that is an objection to God having God existing and allowing evil because we may not be privy to all the reasons God has to allow evil. So the fact that we cannot understand what they could be is not an objection to think he does not have them. And I think that there's a parallel argument here. The fact that we can't understand and perceive all the reasons that God can have to allow the degree of moral ambiguity that exists in the interpretive community with respect to scripture is not a reason to think God does not have reasons to allow that degree of moral ambiguity. He could very well have those reasons, even though we are not privy to all of those reasons. So I think that that's a legitimate way of rebutting the objection. Now, it doesn't necessarily satisfy the critic. The mm -hmm. critic might still say, well, I'm not convinced. Well, that's fine. You're not going to convince everybody of, of everything ever. Uh, but I do think that it is a, a good response for a Christian who is concerned about that ambiguity, that they need not be too concerned because they can trust God, even though they don't know all the reasons he has for allowing that ambiguity.
That's super helpful. So thanks, Randall. Um, so my next question then is, let's talk a little bit more about like there being morally sufficient reasons to leave scripture like ambiguous. Um, you hinted at like spiritual formation. So um, do you have other reasons or maybe you want to hone in that on that a little bit more about like why God could have morally sufficient reasons for ambiguous scripture? So I think one of, uh, and I talk about this at the end of the chapter, is, is that there is intrinsic value in working together for a communal disambiguation which is a way of just saying there is intrinsic value in the interpretive community together reading the text for greater understanding over time. And where there is disagreement that exists within the text, working to disambiguate that uh, uh, different interpretations so that we can converge on a greater clarity as to what the proper interpretation is. And so, for example, I, I argue that the book Jesus Loves Canaanites is itself um, in that process, I am working to help the Christian community disambiguate how to interpret and think about the Canaanite conquest. And I, I do think that there is intrinsic value in this process of communal disambiguation. So um, let's go back again to the assumptions about what the Bible is there for. Is it like an escape map to get out of the hotel as quickly as possible, or is it something else? Well, mm -hmm. think by analogy of a set of instructions for how to build a particular object, a particular structure. And those instructions are ambiguous and hard to understand. You would think, okay, those are bad instructions, right? You should not have them. But the whole purpose again is, well, but what is the point of the ambiguity in the instructions? Well, let me paint a scenario in which this makes sense. Uh, I talk about this in one of my books, in fact, with a book I wrote with Justin Schieber called An Atheist and a Christian Walk into a Bar. He raises an objection, much like Loftus's miscommunication objection, but he calls it the problem of a massive theological disagreement. Why is there this disagreement theologically within the community of faith? And so I give this illustration. Imagine that you have uh, two different groups that both have the same set of ambiguous, hard to understand instructions to assemble a particular product or object. Well, you would say again, well, why are the instructions ambiguous? Well, here's a scenario. What if the instructions, what if the whole scenario is a team building exercise? So that by working together, try to figure out how to uh, construct this object based upon the instructions given, um, these two different teams are building camaraderie with one another. They're cultivating virtues within their micro communities uh, learning to work together, learning to trust one another, sharing and pooling knowledge, and beginning to figure out how to construct the object, and also having a friendly uh, competition with the other side. And the collective result is that, in fact, they did grow in a way that they would not have grown if you simply had two straightforward sets of instructions. Mm -hmm. And I think a scenario like that is very plausible, for part of the purpose of Scripture is to invite us into the wrestling with the ambiguity of the text as we seek to interpret it Christologically. Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. I was thinking I'm doing some work on C.S. Lewis right now for my thesis. And he talks about um, before he became an atheist, like he had this vision of God who was up there watching us. And occasionally someone would say a prayer and like he'd intervene and like, you know, he just fixed the problems. And like, that's, that was his vision of God. And he quickly came to realize like, that is not who God is. Um, God is not like, I, like we have this vision of having these like, you know, you say this perfect prayer and then you're set and then you say your prayer every once in a while and God will help you out. But like, that is just not the Christian story. And I don't think that's what most people experience in 
there is a lot of value in experiencing and working together to kind of solve these things. So do you, do you see that same value in having us wrestle through these things rather than just being like these like drop down answers from heaven to solve all of our serious questions? Yeah, I, I like the, the parallel C.S. Lewis illustration. I think that's a very opposite. Um, mm -hmm. When I've talked about the problem of evil, so I sometimes give the illustration, like because people will often ask, well, why didn't God just create heaven at the beginning? If heaven's the end goal, why not just avoid all the evil and suffering that comes along the way? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, here's an analogy that you have two different scenarios. In scenario one, you get dropped off on the mountain peak, and then you can do your sightseeing, and then the helicopter picks you up later. On scenario two, you end up at the mountain peak as well, but not because you were dropped off by a helicopter, but because you slowly climbed up the mountain peak uh, with a team. And the, all of you were collectively exerting yourself, expending great, enormous amounts of energy, helping each other, showing courage and so on, selflessness, and eventually getting to the top of the mountain. Both of those leave you at the top of the mountain at the end. But I think the second one, you can argue that it is preferable to the first one in the sense that there are intrinsic values like the value of courage and fortitude and stick and generosity that you have to, to cultivate as you work together up the mountain to climb the mountain versus just getting dropped off by a helicopter. And in the same way that if you have a text that is completely without ambiguity, you can say, well, that's like getting dropped off on the helicopter. Um, there's value there, no doubt, but there's greater value that is added with a text that has some degree of interpretive ambiguity that you wrestle through as a reading community and slowly climb up the mountain to arrive at the correct interpretation. So I, I, it seems to me that there, there's a lot of intuitive plausibility there. It's interesting because I also thought about, I took a leadership class in high school, Randall, and we had this question that was brought up so many times. It's like, would you rather learn through experience or rather meet the teacher just telling you like what's the right answer and the wrong answer? And like, everyone in the class had experience and like it wasn't in a context related to like biblical ambiguity or like the problem of evil but like it's just like it seems like intuitively like that's the common like human thing is we want to learn through experience rather than just be dropped on top of the mountain so i appreciate yeah. that now now uh, let me i, I agree 100 percent, but i also want to steel man the objector so mm -hmm. the objector is going to say okay that, that's fine if you're like learning from experience and, and like figuring out how to assemble a product or something but what you have yeah. in Christian history is you have Christians who have often interpreted passages in Scripture to justify actions that we consider to be moral atrocities. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I talk about Oliver Cromwell uh, invading in Ireland and committing genocidal atrocities against the Irish and justifying them with respect to a particular interpretive appeal to Joshua. The same mm -hmm. thing when you have the Puritans um, in North America justifying uh, genocidal actions toward indigenous peoples based upon a particular interpretive reading of Joshua. And a person can say, um, surely there's a breaking point. Like, how can you justify that and say, well, we, we over time achieve a greater moral maturity within the community of faith because some of us interpreted Joshua to justify moral atrocities? Mm -hmm. I appreciate that difficulty. I do think, however, that you can also say, on the other hand, to go back to the skeptical theist response, that just as the problem is much greater, so the diversity for the potential outcomes that happen in the process of in the long process of history from divergent readings, wrestling with the ambiguity of the text, that's also so much greater that I just don't think we're in a position definitively to say that God could not have morally sufficient reasons to allow the misreading of texts, even that sometimes 
lead to the putative justification of moral atrocities. So that, again, that's not going to satisfy everybody, but uh, it does satisfy me at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's good. There's also something as you're talking, Randall, with that example, thinking about like intrinsic versus like extrinsic religi religiosity. So like someone like Oliver Cromwell, like is he like reading Joshua and he's like, oh, I should go slay all the Irish. That'd be really good because it seems like from Joshua that might be something God would want me to do. Or is it um, Oliver Cromwell wants to go slay the Irish and he's like, well, here's this text in Joshua that seems to align with what I want to do. So maybe I say that. And you know. Sometimes it's just really hard to know. We can't psycho psychoanalyze Oliver Cromwell, but like I have a hard time believing like it's the former of those two situations. So, yeah, yeah. there are. Uh, you could say, for example, one of the things that that the um, the degree of ambiguity that exists does is reveals the heart of people. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, there are certain people that are already hating their neighbor in essence, and they're looking for a justification for it. And you shouldn't necessarily blame the text for being misused by people who already hate their neighbor and are looking for a justification for their hatred. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that would be a fair rejoinder. Yeah, that's good. So what we'll do now is we have one more question. And then if you have any Q and A, we'll do a little bit of Q and A if that's fine with you, Randall, just checking. Sure. Um, so you can send any questions or as a super chat, obviously we'll answer that first because it helps support the channel. Um, but let's talk about like more like the pastoral personal side of this of like causing doubt. Cause I think this is one of the bigger things, especially for like people that start in their deconstruction is like, having these serious questions about the Bible, like slavery in the Bible, genocide in the Bible, like what is going on here? I don't understand it. And it leads to even more doubts. So like how do you kind of address this, this wider issue of like personal doubt with regards to biblical ambiguity? A couple of things. Uh, so first of all, one thing is that we should not be afraid of doubt. I grew up, as I said, fun evangelical. Uh, and growing up within that tradition, doubt was considered circumspect. Uh, so we would we would appeal to texts such as uh, Jesus chastising Peter sinking into the waves, saying, why did you doubt? And we would say that, well, doubt is always a problem and you have to avoid doubt at all costs. And if there is, if you do doubt, there's something morally or spiritually wrong with you. The reality is, however, that doubt is simply a part of the Christian life. Now, nobody seeks out wanting to doubt in the same way that people don't want to experience pain. But sometimes physical pain is uh, just an aspect of life in this fallen world. And sometimes doubt is an aspect of life in this fallen world as well. And many, I mean, think about the, the John the Baptist. He baptizes his cousin and he announces him triumphantly to the world. And then not long afterwards, he's in prison and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come that we were expecting or should we wait for somebody else? That, to me, is one of the most extraordinary turnarounds in all of Scripture. This, this, I mean, from, from John proclaiming Jesus Messiah, thinking, maybe you're not the Messiah after all. Why am I in prison? If John the Baptist can have doubt, surely we can as well. So they are simply a part of the Christian life. And we need to allow Christians to have the space of experiencing and wrestling with that doubts without stigma. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing, the second thing that I would want to say is that we also need to keep the main thing, the main thing, to quote Stephen Covey. Uh, and Jesus is the main thing. More specifically, if, if we want to go to what is the heart of Christianity, I would suggest starting with the early creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed, the Chalcedonian definition. And these are documents that were formative for the early Christian church. And they articulate what I would say is a protean doctrine of the Trinity, uh, doctrine of incarnation, 
atonement, resurrection, restoration, set against the backdrop of an assumed fall of alienation. That's sort of the heart of Christianity. And that is not shaken. I think that that is perspicuously clear when you read through scripture. Where you do get the ambiguity is in the details, such as did mm -hmm. God really command the conquest of Canaan? If we can appreciate that we can debate and reflect on and struggle with those details without feeling like it is upsetting the very heart of Christianity that I just summarized, then I think hopefully we can begin to deal with and ameliorate or attenuate some of the doubts that we may experience. I really like that second point because like, you know, I started talking to you again about like this question of like, I'm wrestling with like the did God command, like what, what we hear in Joshua and Deuteronomy. And it's like, I always go back and like, oh, first Corinthians 15 or like reading like the Nicene Creed. It's like, yeah, I totally believe all these things. And like, that's um, kind of like my, my foundation. I can like really feel free to like wrestle and doubt with these things, knowing like these aren't like the essentials of the, like the Christian faith rising and falling on these particular things. So, yeah. yeah. So do you have any kind of, we'll go to Q&A in just a moment. Uh, so I saw one question and we'll just go through as many as we can. And if there's not many, that's cool. Do you have any kind of like last thoughts on anything we've talked about, Randall, before we go into Q&A? Uh, one thing that I always like to kind of stress in this conversation is simply that, uh, again, Christian communities of faith should create space for people to disagree about these issues. Mm -hmm. So again, to go back to my upbringing, there is sort of this sense where church is not a safe place to raise these kinds of questions. Because once you begin to raise questions that maybe you, you don't have a good answer to, then you are seen as a poop disturber. Uh, you're seen as a troublemaker. You're seen as someone who's just cultivating doubt and skepticism. But in fact, I think that the willingness to embrace and ask and wrestle with these questions, even when you're not sure what the answer is, is a sign of spiritual maturity. And just to, to close with this, so um, M. Scott Peck, and I talk about this at the end of the chapter as well, M. Scott Peck, the well-known psychologist, he talks about uh, what is the difference between pseudo-community or false community and true community. And he says pseudo-community is where everybody has to get along and nobody is willing to raise any difficult, awkward, or uncomfortable questions or have any confrontations with anybody else you're on your best behavior because you don't really know these people. And that's why it's pseudo community. You can't be comfortable around them. True community is when you are willing and able to embrace difficult questions, to have some degree of confrontation with one another, because it's not going to threaten your underlying shared communal narrative. And what we need to work toward are Christian communities, Christian churches, congregations, which are not pseudo communities where you're afraid to wrestle issue to, to wrestle with issues of biblical violence or to raise a question about it, but rather true communities mm. where we can embrace openly the struggles of faith and the ambiguity in the text. That's super good, Randall. I appreciate you um, bringing that up. Um, so we'll leave it there. We'll go to a little bit of Q and A. Um, so if you have questions, feel free to put them in now. Um, BDS asks, um, do you think Christians keep conceding ground in non-Christians um, concerning things such as like evolution, a local flood, inerrancy, um, revelation being metaphorical? Metaphorical. Um, will we keep conceding? So, like, do you think that do you think Christians are conceding, and is this a problem? Do you think, Randall? Uh, so to say concede. Uh, let's back up for a second. So evolution, for example, local flood is mentioned. Um, we go to a, a 17th century example, the movement from geocentrism to heliocentrism, moving from the idea that the earth is the fixed point of the universe to the sun is the fixed point of the universe. 
Um, the questioner, I'm, I assume, is okay with that concession. So if you want to call it a concession. So it would suggest then that some concessions are perfectly valid. I mean, if there's good evidence for them. Uh, we wouldn't want to continue to argue that heliocentrism is false. And in fact, the Earth is the fixed center of the universe and everything goes around it. That just doesn't work anymore. But I would even challenge the underlying assumption that we should think of these as concessions. I think that rather what we should think of them as is part of God's general revelation informing the interpretation of his special revelation. So uh, when a scientist learns something new about the structure and nature of the universe, we shouldn't think that that's threatening our faith or that to uh, interpret scripture in light of what we've now learned from science is somehow a concession to the science, but rather is a recognition of further truth or general revelation being revealed to us and now adjusting our interpretation of scripture and our understanding of theology in light of that new discovery. So that's the way that I would want to frame it. Yeah. So I'm, I'll leave it at that. Mm, yeah. It's also like a lot of these are like non-essential issues. Like um, it's a lot, these are a lot of different things than if they like discovered the body of Jesus laying in the grave somewhere. Um, so I think that's all the qu questions we have, Randall. So you must've done a perfect job for no questions. Um, but do you have any kind of like resources or anything? Obviously we have your book, which is a great resource on Old Testament violence and this question. Um, what else would you recommend for like wrestling with biblical ambiguity? Well, um, I would also recommend Greg Boyd's books on the topic. Uh, I do critique him in my book, but he's one of the scholars I've really appreciated and benefited from. Uh, now, he wrote the 1,500-page two-volume work, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. But he also has two short books on the topic, uh, Cross Vision and Inspired Imperfection. And those are good places to go to begin to wrestle with it. A friend of mine, Eric Siebert, who's an Old Testament scholar writing out of the pacifist tradition, has written some good stuff on this. Um yeah, uh, Peter Enns. I think people know Pete's work as well. Um, now, he doesn't talk a lot about biblical violence in particular, but he does offer, I think, some very helpful overviews of how to think about the nature of Scripture. Um, I think that Brian Dirksen, some of his stuff has been helpful on this. But I think that you should, uh, I'd also want to say, like those are people that I just described that are broadly convergent with my perspective. I also would want to say that read people that are not. So read people like Paul Copan and Matthew Flanagan in the in Did God Really Command Genocide, a book that I critique extensively in my book, but which I think is important and well worth reading. And then what you do is when you read people you disagree with is that you simply broaden your perspective as iron sharpens iron. Mm. That's super well put, Randall. Thank you. This has been really good. Like, I feel really edified, and I hope everyone else listening does. Like, there's a lot of great stuff we covered here. Um, so thank you so much, Randall. Last question. Like, how can people follow you, stay connected to your work, and things like that? Uh, you can find me online, uh, randallrouser.com. I'm also on YouTube, if you search my name there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Randall. It's been so much fun. I really appreciate your time. Um, the BDS, Dabba Duh, whatever your YouTube name is, Slamar and everyone else. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, be sure to subscribe if you're new. Um, leave a like, leave a review, all that stuff. And then if you enjoy the content, you can go to Patreon at patreon.com, such as here on Projects. Those that are a month, your support means a lot. Um, but Randall, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. So I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Zach. All right, take care. God bless everyone. Thank you.